Welcome everyone to the Freddie and Alyssa show. If you're new to the channel, be sure to subscribe, like, comment, all that fun YouTube stuff. If you're watching on Facebook and you want to follow the page, that would be awesome. And if you're listening on a platform like iTunes, hello out there. If you think we deserve a five-star review and you want to give us a review, that would be amazing. We've been putting up content now for almost four years. This November is going to be our four-year anniversary and we couldn't be doing what we love without all of your support. So thank you for tuning in every single Wednesday and supporting the show. Today, we have an amazing guest, Matthew Chase, who is a mortgage lender here in Central Florida. So I think we've all heard about the, the real estate market in today's world. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are looking to buy a home. So we go over so many questions. And Alyssa actually um, met I've, Matthew. You've worked together many times yes. now. So I'm a realtor here in Central Florida, and I've worked on a few deals with Matthew. And we it was so crazy because we finally got to meet face to face today for the very first time through our Zoom interview. And we've had this relationship on the phone where we're talking, talking, talking. So it was so wonderful to finally see him face to face. He's such a fantastic guy super knowledgeable you guys are just going to absolutely love this any questions you have ever had about mortgage lenders buying a home i guarantee you he covered it today we went through a lot of stuff from from like 15-year mortgage to 30-year mortgage today's market advice for first-time home buyers and so much more um so we, we know you're going to love this episode and i i'm kind of biased because i'm a numbers person but <laughs> i have been picking matthew's brain for the past four months and i finally see a clear roadmap into purchasing a home. And I think a lot of us, if you're like me, maybe you just don't know like what is the actual stepping stones that mm -hmm. you need to be approved for a loan and what that process is like. So Matthew does a really great job of filling you in. So we're gonna queue up the interview in just a second. But first, a word from our sponsor, read by my beautiful wife, Alyssa. She makes me say that. Alyssa, uh, the sponsor, please. Today's sponsor is brought to you by Lugs. And guys, let's take a little trip and head back to the golden age of the 90s. That was when the fun and stylish Lugs brand first found its footing as a leader within the footwear and fashion space. Fast forward to today and Lugs is crushing it. They are offering a full range of stylish footwear for the entire family. I just so happen to have this adorable combat boot. They have such versatile styles. And I gotta say, with the holidays coming up, you are definitely gonna wanna get that shopping started early. And there's no better place if you're looking for footwear than lugs.com. And the amazing news is we have a 30% off discount for our listeners, for our viewers. And that discount code is FreddieAlyssa30. You use that at checkout at lugs.com and you can use this code on any full priced item. So this doesn't go for the sale section, but is for full price items, 30% off, FreddieAlyssa30. Head on over there. Let's get the holiday shopping done early so we don't have to stress about it and enjoy because they are so adorable. I think our, our first question that we kind of debated on what should be the first question, but I think this is the most asked question. Um, and it's kind of a loaded one, but what advice do you have for a first time home buyer? Don't give up. Hmm. That's the best advice, honestly. I mean, I mean, I was a first time home buyer myself back in 2010 and you know, the process can be stressful. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's never a matter of if you can buy a house, it's a matter of when and how. So the key is to have a good team behind you, realtors, lenders. Um, those, are the, those are the key moving variables because the two of them together can find unique ways to get you in a house. Uh, sometimes it's credit related issues. Sometimes it's money you have saved in the bank. Sometimes it's you know, needing to save more money. Sometimes it's just a matter of moving money from cash into a bank account and letting it sit for a while. But ultimately it's just, you know, it's getting sound advice from experts in the field doing what they recommend you do, following those steps, and you'll get to the win. And then that's, it's, it's all smooth sailing from there. So if, so if somebody, let's say, is a W-2 employee and mm -hmm. they're coming to you for the first time to buy a home, um, what are some of like the, the qualifications that you look at? Like, what are some of the main things that people need to focus on? Is it how much money you have saved? Is it solid work history? Is it, I know it's kind of all of that, but yep. what would you say so that people can kind of come and go, okay, so I got a couple pay stubs here, but like, what do I really need and what's important to really like sure. make it happen? So there's an acronym I used that I was taught when I first started called PAIL. So if you can remember like a bucket, right? PAIL, that's what we look at. Property, assets, income, liabilities. Those are the four things that are used to qualify for a mortgage. 
Um, so the property would be, you know, is there HOAs, you know what I mean? The tax information, the monthly payment, the principal and interest. Your assets would be just that, you know, any money you have in the bank account, whether it be stocks, dividends, 401k, you're getting a gift from family or whatnot. Um, your income is just that, it's your income. So that's your annual salary. Um, if you're W-2, like you mentioned, but W-2, what a lot of people don't realize is because there's this common misconception that you need to be on the job for two years to qualify for a mortgage. And that is just not true. Um, if that was the case, how would an 18-year-old out of high school buy a house? You see what I mean? But they can. So the key is, is that you have to be able to prove a two-year work history, not necessarily the same job. If you're coming out of college or high school, then you've got to be able to have like a letter of explanation or your college transcripts to show what you were doing before you were working. The underwriter just wants to know your story. It all boils down to risk factor to the bank at the end of the day. So as long as you can true up and, and give a, ver a very solid story that you are qualified to repay that debt, the bank is going to be more likely to approve you for the loan. Um, so yeah, W-2s, I mean, if you start a brand new job as a W-2 employee, all we really need is your offer letter showing what your pay rate is full time and your first pay stub, and we can use that income. Um, on the flip side, if you're self-employed, if you're, you know, commissioned employees such as myself, if you are work on piecework, like I know Alyssa, one of your friends that we were talking to, she, she does acting, right? So as an actor or actress, you get paid piecework. It's basically by the job, right? So if you, we need to take an average of that. You need to show two years history in those types of fields, same with part-time work. And then we take an average of that. And since COVID hit, they've gotten even more strict because they don't only take the average, they want your year-to-date profit and loss statement if you're self-employed to show that money did not decrease. And they want to see your last year's profit and loss statement, as well as three months business bank statements to show that the money is still being deposited into the account from your business. So they've gotten a little tighter since COVID. I think it's a good thing, honestly. I think it's something they probably should have done the whole time through, but that's kind of income in a, in a nutshell. And then your liabilities are just that, you know, anything you owe on your credit report, uh, car payments, collections, um, you know, credit cards, regular loans, signature loans, student loans, all those things would be included in the liability section. Gotcha. So then for you, how long have you been in this industry? Like, what does one have to do in order to become a lender? What's that process look like? So I've been in the industry. I started in January of 2018. So I've been doing it, let's see, 18, 19, coming up on four years. Time flies when you're having fun. Um, and I personally, I work for a bank. So when you work for a bank, it's really nice because you can move into the mortgage business without even getting your state exam, without passing your state exam. You can go work for a bank and you work under their umbrella with their license. You have to be licensed through NMLS, but you don't have to take the state exam. Um, when you do that, you have some flexibility where with a, with a bank, most banks you can lend in multiple states. Like I can originate loans in 47 states, not just in Florida. Or if you get your state license in Florida and you work for an independent mortgage company or a broker, you can only originate in that state unless you get licensed in each extra state and take their tests. So that's one of the benefits of working for a bank. Um, I also like the processes of a bank. They seem to be more fluid because it's a corporatized processing. So they have a kind of final machine. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's one way. The other way is you go, you take your license. Um, you learn a bunch of information that you probably won't ever use. And then you start working and you get thrown to the wolves. And that's just the industry. I mean, most of the state exam, because I did take the test twice, I passed or I, I took the the class and passed the class twice. I just never got around to taking the state exam because I didn't need to um, in, my, in my line of work where I'm, where I'm working now. Most of the testing is laws and rules related, ethics, laws, rules, stuff like that. So kind of like an insurance or any other, or real estate, right? So a lot of it's like, oh, this is great. But then when you get out there, like I didn't learn any of the stuff they're telling me. So it's kind of trial and error at that point, you know? And then what, what drew you into wanting to be a lender? I, I know we mentioned before the podcast that you enjoyed numbers, but was there something specific that drew you to wanting to be yeah, a lender? Yeah, so I, I really had no desire to be a lender at first. I was in, my background stems from telecom. I was at Sprint for 15 years and AT&T for three years. I pretty much plateaued in that line of work. I did everything you can imagine from starting in activations at 18 years old to ending with business, as a business account executive for enterprise accounts, handling accounts like Amazon, um, O'Reilly Auto Parts and things of that nature. And I got kind of bored with that because I was just, you know, I wasn't challenged. Um, then I tested my luck in audiovisual, doing like sound and video setup for the sales side of that. It was cool, but it really wasn't my thing. And then I went into software sales 
which to me was for some people, but to me, it's like insurance. You know, I don't want to sell doom and gloom. You know, what happens when your system crashes? I'm like, nah, that's not my thing. I'd rather sell something happy. And one of my old bosses at Sprint actually introduced me to the mortgage business and told me, hey, man, you do great. You should come over. So I, I gave it a shot. And when I came on board, you know, the advice I would have for anybody looking to get into the industry is you have to find something you're good at. You got to stand out from the other lenders out there because there's thousands upon thousands of them. I mean, there's 16,000 realtors in Central Florida right now, and there's probably equal, if not more lenders. So you've got to do something that's unique to stand out. Like the show you guys are doing is very unique, right? It's something that nobody else is really doing or very few people. And if they are doing it, they're not doing it consistently, right? Um, I didn't speak Spanish. I didn't have a whole lot of things that I could lean on that were different, right? So what I ended up finally, I didn't have a lot of money to throw at it to, for marketing. So what I ended up doing is I would go to open houses and I would just visit realtors at open houses um, on the weekends, bring a little goodie bag, sit down and talk with them, see who they're working with. And, you know, just ask if I could talk to some of their buyers if they happen to walk in and show them how I, you know, worked with the buyers. And I took my sales experience from being a sales coach and a sales manager at Sprint over to the mortgage business. And I helped realtors continue, you know, keep constant contact with their prospective buyers and what have you. So that was kind of my niche. I would do follow-up calls for them, call their cold clients, because a lot of realtors get into the business. And Alyssa, you probably know this, they watch HDTV. They're like, oh, wow, you show three houses, you make $6,000 and it's great. It's easy, you know? And then you get there, you're like, uh, twiddling your thumbs, where's all the business? You know what I mean? Well, you got a cold call. And a lot of realtors don't understand the sales side of the real estate business. So if you're not calling, you're not getting leads. And they don't, they're not comfortable calling. They don't know how to make a cold call. They've never done it before. So that's why I would step in. I would sit down and we would kind of cold call together. We'd each take a call and then we'd critique each other and, and just, you know, Again, trial and error, you just got to keep pushing through, but it worked out well for me. It, it gave me quite a few realtor contacts that still work with me to this day, and they've referred other realtors, and I treat my realtors like my customer, and then I treat my buyers like the quality assurance survey. So if, if I do right by the buyer, the realtor is going to know, and they're going to send me more business, and that's just how it works. That, that's what we've found even like watching her and being in sales and marketing kind of throughout our life as well. It's like, no matter what business you have, it's the acquiring of a customer or client that really is, I think, what separates people from having a successful career or not. Because you can know everything, but if right. you don't know how to acquire that client, you're just sitting there with all this knowledge and not, you know. <laughs> well, there's a thing, there's two things when it comes to sales, right? You've got my, one of my old sales managers or trainers told me that there's a technique a lot of salespeople use called show up and throw up, right? They just show up and they just start telling you everything they know. And it's like, it's overwhelming, but they're so excited about the product and they, they just want you to buy it. And then you, but they don't really care. And the, the second part of that is people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Once you show somebody how much you care, then they want to know what you know. It's not the other way around. So I try and ask my realtors, what is it you need? And 90% of them just say communication. I just want a lender who communicates. Okay. Well, what does communication look like? Weekends, nights, mornings? I mean, what, how soon do you expect responses? Here's what I can do for you. Would that work for you? What about, you know, somebody that helps you call your leads? Do you have that right now? How busy are you? What if you're in a showing and you get a lead come in from a lead gen system, Zillow or whatnot, and you can't jump on it immediately, but you could text me that lead and say, hey, could you call these guys real quick and see if it's a warm or not? And I could call, would that be valuable to you? So a lot of realtors want you to help them pay for their Zillow leads, which is expensive. And coming in new to the industry, like I said, I didn't have a lot of money to throw at that. But I would approach it and again, a numbers game, right? I would approach it to them and say, Hey, you know, I can either pay you $3,000, right? A month or $300 a month, let's say for your Zillow leads. And which would equal out to about $3,600 a year. Right. Or I could help you close two more deals a year, which would make you about 6,000 plus what's more valuable. And then they say, well, how are you going to help me close deals? I'm going to call the Zillow leads for you. That's what I'm going to do. You know, yeah. cause you're not calling them. If you were, they'd be, they'd be closing. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, but there's just, and there's different ways to approach it. I mean, everybody's going to have their own take. The key is you got to know your why. You got to know why you're doing what you do. And if you're in it for the money, don't bother because it's a hustle. And the first year you'll be lucky to eat peanut butter and jelly the whole year. It's just the truth. You better have a fat stack of cash sitting in the bank. I mean, I had to sell my house to make it. I sold my house and lived on the equity for a year just to make it in the business, you know? And then the second year, my volume quadrupled. And then the third year, it went up even more and it's, it multiplies every year that goes by. But the first year or two is it's, it's a hustle. It's hard.
So then for you current day today, working as a mortgage lender, what's a day in the life for you? I sleep till about two. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's, that's the one thing about this job that's really nice about this career is it's very flexible, kind of like a realtor, you know, it's as busy as you want it to be. Um, the key is, is the communication. Like if I get a realtor or a buyer that call me, I make sure I respond immediately. And if that response is, Hey, you know, I'm busy for the next hour or two, I'll call them then. If you want to give them a shout before, that's what it is. But you have to do what you say you're going to do. You know, you've got to always set the expectations and, and deliver on those expectations. But my day, I mean, I get up, I make some calls for realtors, make my coffee, you know, get up, start calling realtors. I usually split the day 50-50. I'll call new realtors for a little while. And then I'll call existing realtors and touch base with them to see how they're doing. If they have any questions, any buyers that are troublesome that might need help with. If they have any listings out there that they have any questions on that they can't get to close that need some suggestions on. Um, and then I'll, you know, check, I'll do usually every Tuesday, I do my status update calls. So if I have deals in pipeline, I'll call the realtors to give an update on the status of the file. What's the appraisal value? What's, you know, if we're an underwriting, if we've got a, you know, conditional approval, things of that nature. Um, I make it a point to get out and do coffee meetings with realtors as much as I can. Uh, I had one today, but unfortunately her husband, they think has COVID. So I'm like, yeah, you probably shouldn't do that one. But, yeah. uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's a constant phone call game. You know, you just, you just got to be on the phones. You've got to be leveraging Facebook, social media, um, putting posts up about new products, making sure people know that you're out there. And there's a 10 foot rule. I call it. If you come within 10 feet of somebody, they should all know what you do for a living. I mean, everywhere you're at, it doesn't matter where you're at, who you're near, just let them know, Hey, I do mortgages. You know, are you looking to buy or, or refinance? You know, we look and, and just ask them. And then if they're not say, what about selling? Are you looking to sell? I got some realtors I can refer you to because again, when you refer business, that brings you more business. So, have have you found um, with like because you've been you said since 2018, so the the mm -hmm. real estate market has drastically changed. Um, can we talk a little about that of, of just a little, bit. just a little? <laughs> um, what is it like today compared to 2018? And just a second question of that: um, if you could speak on the FHA loan. Uh, as well as the second part of this is, is, are you seeing FHA loans being issued uh, even in today's market or are people being outbid when the appraisal or like all of that kind of stuff? Um, loaded question, but I figured I'd just throw <laughs> that at you. No, those yeah. are great questions. The real estate market to answer the first one has changed dramatically since I started and it's, it's blown my mind. Um, when I first started, it was, it was slow. It was a buyer's market. You know, people were accepting down payment assistance. I mean, it was, it was a, it was a slower market. You know, now a house is, you're lucky to have it on the market for two to three days tops and it's under contract, you know? So my whole go out there and visit realtors at open houses is probably not the best advice for a new lender coming in right now. So you got to get creative and don't steal my idea on that, but they're just not doing open houses. I mean, you don't have time. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely changed a lot. We're in a seller's market. I do see that starting to plateau a little bit. Prices, I think, are going to start leveling off. I don't anticipate we're in a bubble. Uh, none of the uh, critics or, or analysts out there even expect a bubble because the reason the bubble hit in 08 was due to the mortgage industry. You know, you had a lot of stated income loans, no doc, no asset loans. I mean, you had people that made no money buying $500,000 houses and just saying, yep, I make this much and nobody asked for documents. So they were getting them into loans that weren't, they weren't approved for that they should have never got. Now we are very strict. Like I said, COVID has even added some overlays into the qualifying and underwriting that we, we don't approve you if you're not eligible. You know what I mean? I think the biggest reason for the bubble in Florida and or I don't even want to call it bubble. I don't like bubbles because bubbles pop. We're not in a bubble. We're just, the prices have gone up. I think we've been due for an increase in price for a long time. When you look at where we live, we have beaches, we have nice weather. I mean, it's, there's no state tax. When COVID hit, a lot of employers allowed their employees to work remotely. So we're seeing a lot of buyers from California, New York that are making a great income, but they're used to paying high taxes, high price for everything. And they're like, wait, I can move to Florida, keep the same job, work from home and pay a quarter of what I'm paying. Okay, I'm out. And they're moving in, in droves. So a lot of Floridians are being priced out. Um, but even if you go to like outskirts of Georgia, everywhere is the same. I mean, it, people are just, the prices are going up. I think we're going to plateau. Um, I think it's coming very soon to where it's going to kind of even out buyer sellers market, um, which will help realtors help buyers. 
But I also think another part of that is a lot of sellers are getting greedy right now. You know, it's almost like when you go through a divorce, you know, it, at first everything's amicable and then you get the attorneys involved and it's, oh, I can get more. Well, now you've got all the, the market involved and you've got realtors, listing agents involved that get greedy and want more commission. And it's unfortunate, but it drives the prices up even higher. And then they get mad when appraisal comes back low. Well, the house isn't worth that. Sorry. You know, <laughs> people are overpaying. They'll pay, they're paying cash. It's just the market we're in. Um, with FHA, I don't, I, I'm still floored as to why FHA loans aren't getting accepted. Um, they're really no different than a conventional mortgage. They're not. They're backed by the government. That's the biggest difference. It used to be that the appraisals were more strict. As long as the house is, is sturdy, livable, you know what I mean? And not a hazard. It, it's the same appraisal as a, as a conventional mortgage. Um, I think a lot of realtors have the impression which they pass along to their sellers that FHA buyers aren't as, and we'll put it in quotes, qualified as a conventional buyer because they only have to put down three and a half percent and whatnot. But that doesn't really necessarily mean anything. I mean, I've had conventional buyers that only have to put down 3% because they're first time buyers that never owned a home before. And that's the minimum for conventional, you know? So it's, I think it's just misunderstanding. Like a lot of people think conventionally, think you got to put down 20%, but you don't. You can do 3% down, first time buyer. You can do as a primary residence, 5% down, non first time buyer, primary residence, 10% down, second home, 20%, 15% to 20% investment. Um, the only difference is that mortgage insurance. You know, if you don't pay 20%, then you're paying the mortgage insurance. So, and, and are you seeing that? Do you think the FHA is more difficult because appraisals are coming under and then don't you have to pay the difference? Yeah, but you have to do that on conventional too. So either way, you got to pay the difference, whether it's FHA or conventional. If, if the appraisal comes in under, the lender's only going to finance you for the purchase price of the appraisal, whichever is lower. So if the appraisal comes in lower than the purchase price, that's all they're going to finance you for. You see what I mean? So you still got to pay the difference no matter what mortgage type you go with. That's just what it is. But I feel like what I'm noticing on my end is people going with conventional loans are putting down a big, um, right. you know, down payment. So the appraisal doesn't really quite matter as much for right. them. And that's why they look at conventional because of the, it's not so much on the loan type. It's that they're looking at the down payment piece, like right. you said. So they're looking at the people's assets in the bank and they want to make sure they got enough money. So I, I, I just feel like even for someone like ourselves who just moved to Florida, who, who want to purchase a house, I feel like so many people are in our position where, yeah, we might want to put down three to 5%, but then you're also now Florida is almost doubled in price. And like you said, it's like adjusting. And I'm hearing stories about even Hawaii, where so many people are moving there that people who were born and raised there don't even have the capability of earning enough to even buy a house because so many people are now moving. They're buying and, out. They're getting the price out of the market. Yeah. yeah. So it's going to be very interesting to see what's going to happen here in the next five, 10 years of yeah. our whole housing. I mean, the other thing too, when it comes to first time buyers, like I said, don't give up as advice and start a backpedal. But the other piece is make sure you get pre-approved first. <clears throat> Do not go out wasting your time, wasting realtor time, getting your hopes up, looking at Zillow, realtor, asking to see properties until you get a pre-approval letter. You know, And I know that in all fairness, society has trained us to do that because the biggest purchase anybody's going to make besides a house is a car. And you can go to the car dealership and test drive that top end Lexus all you want. And then they bring you to finance afterwards and say, oh, sorry, you only approved for the Camry. You know what I mean? So that's what we're used to. We're used to test driving the vehicle. We're used to seeing the house before we're qualified. But in a purchase transaction like this, especially with COVID, you know, you're walking in someone's home and a lot of people don't want people in their houses with with this going on, with the way that this virus is spreading. So that's a big factor of it too. You know, you've got to look at it and put yourself in the seller standpoint. If, would you want somebody meandering through your house if they weren't qualified to buy? I wouldn't, you know what I mean? I don't want you just walking in my home, looking around at my stuff when you're not there, it, not unless you're really serious. So make sure you're qualified first, because then it mitigates that risk for one. For two, it also allows you to shop within your, your budget. Because the last thing you want to do is see that Lexus and then have to settle for a Camry because that Camry is not going to look too pretty. But if you start with a Camry, it's a nice looking car. You know what I mean? you got to start within your means. So get pre-approved. You have to get pre-approved. And, and can we do like a, a quick example? Because I, you know, I'm 33 years old. And uh, after talking to you a few months ago, it was the first time I ever learned that it's not even truly based on like, if you can afford a $400,000 house, it's what you can afford monthly. Right. And how your income, you said it's like 45% of your income, then minus liabilities. Is that correct? Like, how does that work for someone who's never even like me, yes. 33 years old, never had a clue on how that worked. 
So you've got debt to income ratio, right? One of the benefits on FHA mortgages, going back to that, is you can have a debt to income ratio of up to 56.99. I call it 56 and just round it, right? 56% debt to income ratio for, for an FHA mortgage. For conventional, it's like 49%. I usually tell people shoot for 45, give yourself a buffer. You know what I mean? But we can get you up to 49. So the way they calculate your debt to income ratio is they take your gross monthly income, if you're W-2, right? If you're self-employed, we take your net. So another key for self-employed borrowers is you want to make sure you've got two years where you didn't write off everything under the sun to show limited income. Make sure you show as much income as you can to qualify you because we're going to take those to your average, right? But with a W-2 employee, we use your gross before taxes. So let's say, I don't know, just for ounce figures, you're making $50,000 a year. That's $4,166 a month gross income, Okay. 45% of that, if you're going to go conventional, let's just say is $1,875 a month in total debt you can have. Total. That's Now that's not including your phone bill. That's everything reporting on credit. So that's student loans, that's signature loans, that's our personal loans, credit cards, car payments, things like that, and your mortgage. So all of that can't exceed $1,875. So if you've got a $400 car payment, you're down to $1,475. You got a $100 credit card, you're down to $1,375. You got a butt ton of student loans, those will hurt you. I mean, we usually count 1%. If you don't have a, if there's no payment plan made on the credit report, which a lot of loans are in deferment, we have to usually count, generally count 1%. They just lower that to a half a percent, which is good news for a lot of buyers. But still, I mean, if you're talking significant amount of student loans, that could rack up a monthly debt obligation pretty high. So, and then the difference is what you're eligible for on a mortgage. It's pretty simple. But what people don't realize is a couple of things. One, we use your gross income, right? So that's before taxes. We're not taking into consideration. Taxes come out of that. Benefits come out of that. 401k comes out of that. Medicare comes out of that. Social security comes out of that. Not to mention electric comes out of that. Water comes out of that. Cell phone, food, gas, entertainment, all those things come out that we don't even account for. So it's easy for someone as a first time buyer to get be, go in house poor if they stretch their budget too thin. And they don't account for those. You have to make sure you have a budget yourself personally, you know, make sure you know all your monthly expenses and then go based on that plus a mortgage. And that would be a more realistic way to, to figure out what you're comfortable with on a payment. Now also too, especially we see this a lot in central Florida when it comes to HOAs, sometimes they can be higher. Can you discuss mm -hmm. a little bit what that means for this monthly um, amount? Yeah. Yep. So that all counts against your debt to income ratio. The mortgage company never collects the HOAs. Those go directly to the homeowner association, but we have to include them in the, for the purpose of the mortgage and for qualifying you. Um, general rule of thumb, and it's give or take, obviously, but for every $250 a month you spend in HOAs, you can get an extra $50,000 worth of a home that has no HOAs, roughly. So if you got a condo that's a $50,000 or $250 a month HOA, it's 150 grand for the house for that condo. You could buy a $200,000 house with no HOA for the same price monthly. That's general rule of thumb. So, yeah, see that? Yeah, and it all makes sense once you learn it. But I was just my mind was blown the first time hearing it of that. Even if you like you said, if you if you have a, a, a principal mortgage insurance, homeowners yep. insurance, principal interest, homeowners association yep. fee, like Everything all of that. Up. In, yeah. So sometimes you look around and go, you're driving around these neighborhoods. You're like, what does everyone do for a living to own all these houses everywhere? You know, and it's just like, wow. So it's you got multiple like, income families. You got people that make very good money that live very frugally. You know what I mean? People that have zero debt. So literally every bit of their gross income, they, they can use towards a house and nothing else. I mean, there's all kinds of different scenarios. I've seen it all. I mean, I've seen doctors that can't afford a home because they're student loans are $2,500 a month, you know? And if they didn't have student loans, they could have buy a house, but you know, they chose to drive a Porsche or a Ferrari and all these other nice things. And they're, they don't have enough money to buy a house. And I've seen the opposite side with people that, you know, work what you would think is a medium job at Publix. They have a nice $225,000, $300,000 home, you know, because they're budget conscious. They, they save their money. They have a good down payment. They kept very low overhead, but majority of America, I'd say probably 80% if I was guessing is, lose paycheck to paycheck, unfortunately. So. And, then, and then do you, do you see, um, you know, like, do, do you see like certain loans being, or, or certain like occupations maybe being approved more often? Like, do you feel like it's 
um, a higher chance of being a W-2 employee, self-employed? Is it kind of all over the place? Do you see something where it's like similar or is every case like completely? Every case is different. I think W-2 employees are much easier and I think any lender would agree with that. Um, what I've seen historically when it comes to self-employed borrowers is they do write off a lot because they don't want to pay a lot of taxes at the end of the year. And it hurts them because they don't have as much to show net that they can use for income. Um, but, you know, firefighters, teachers, um, you know, any kind of just corporate employee that works, you know, regular salary job, those are usually pretty well qualified. It's just going to depend a lot on, there's so many factors, right? You've got the, the, the property, assets, income, liabilities. But when it comes to income, I mean, any stable salary career, maybe a little bonus or something they've been getting for two years or commissions or, or whatnot, you know, those are, those are going to be pretty solid, solid buyers typically. Exactly. And then, and do you find that, I know you're probably biased in this question, but um, with the, with people being able to work from home, traveling a lot and doing all that kind of stuff, um, do you find it to still be a solid investment of in 2021 of looking to purchase a house? Um, should people maybe do renting or home buying? Do you have any, any insight on, on that for the future? Cause I know the home buying a home is kind of the staple of the American dream. Yeah. Do you see that slightly changing or how do you, what, what do you think on that? I think people have fear of missing out, right? It's like, everybody's trying to chase that, that carrot, you know? Um, I will never say it's ever a bad time to buy a house ever. Like it's always a good time to buy real estate, especially when it comes to a home. For example, I mean, I bought my house in 2010, right? I'll say I paid 190 for it. I sold it eight years later for about one, about 280, 270 or so, somewhere around there. I can't remember the exact number, but it was right around there. So when you do all the math, I basically lived in my house for $300 a month for eight years. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can't rent that cheap. You know what I mean? So yeah. it, when you rent, you're literally throwing money down the drain. You're, you're paying somebody else's mortgage. My daughter just turned 18. And one thing I wish they'd teach in schools is instead of just being so cookie cutter and everybody learns the same curriculum, you know, teach kids how to be more independent and teach them how to be financially intelligent. You know what I mean? Give them some financial courses, not how to save money, but how to help their money make them money. So right now I'm trying to help my daughter out. Um, I've given her some suggestions, whether she takes them or not is up to her, but you know, I feel like I'm obligated to do that. I'm like, you know, if you save, if you live with your dad for two, three more years and you save money, you know, I mean, I charge her rent. She, I keep her rent and I put it in a, in a, in a safe location. And then when she's, when she moves out, it's her money, but I want to teach her that's the saving part of it. And I said, if you continue saving on your own in two to three years, you could have a down payment for a house. Your credit will be good because I added her as an authorized user on my credit cards, which is another thing people need to understand. If you have kids, make them an authorized user on your card. I didn't say give them a card, but add them as an authorized user on the card. It'll help build their credit early on. Um, for, for example, if I've had a card for 10 years that I've been current on and kept really low balances on, and I were to add you, Freddie, to my card, it would automatically, automatically show on your credit that you have 10 years with that card. Wow. It's wow. the day I add you. The day I add you. So it's that, it's that beneficial to a, a child or anybody who has poor credit or needs help with their credit to do something like that for them, as long as you don't give them a card and let them use it. You know what I mean? Um, but I did that. And I told my daughter, you buy a house in three years, and instead of renting, you go buy a home. You get two or three of your friends to move in. You charge them each $500 a month rent. And now you continue to live for free. You live for free with your dad and you let them pay $1,500 a month for your mortgage and you live for free with your friends. Now that's the thinking. <laughs> you know, and, then, and then when five years is up, you have an option. You can flip that home to an investment and go buy another home or you can sell that home and like with somebody like or go buy another home. There's so many options out there, but you need to learn. Children need to learn to, to have their money make them money. You've got to always be investing. And there's so many ways to do it. Do you, do you feel your, your daughter at, at her age is um, like fully like comprehending though, the, the no. like how important. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Haley, I love you, but no, she's not. In fact, when I told her that she went and told my fiance a funny story. She's like, my dad said, I have to save $10,000 to live here. I'm like, <laughs> but so, no, she's not comprehending it. I try to. And I think one day she will, I just pray it's before she moves out. You know what I mean? But it's still our, it's our duty as parents to, to instill these things into our kids and at least do our best to explain it. But it's hard. I mean, it's hard to explain a grown adult how to buy a house. You know, you try yeah. explaining an 18 year old and it's, it's a challenge. 
So. It almost feels like you have to, and, and that's why, because we're thinking of, you know, with kids or you talk about education, because the thing that like rips my heart out that like kills me and I can't think of the past, but I had an amazing job for a decade making a lot of money, but didn't understand budgeting, investing, um, being self-employed and writing things off, didn't get a house in I California. I see Alyssa shaking her head. She looks kind of dis- disappointed <laughs> in you there, Freddie. <laughs> It is, At least we know now, though. Right. We know now, but it almost took that ass beating to mm-hmm. truly understand the perspective. But then once you understand, then you look at your debt, you look at the bad credit and decisions you made, you go, oh my God, Freddie, like, why didn't I pick up this? And my parents told me my whole life, like, you need to save, don't get bad cr- credit card debt. Like, yeah. but it never, like, why doesn't it stick until it's like, and that's why I was saying with your daughter, I just wonder if having someone like yourself who's in this industry and understands finance at such a great level of like does that help or is it just the young mind just wants to go i think it's the young mind you know teenagers it's like they say when you when you have a kid that's a teenager i mean i've heard my dad told me this he's like you know hurry up and move out now while you still know everything you know what i mean do it quick (laughs) i still know everything um because they do we all and we all thought that you know every we're all guilty of it you know and the first time you get a chunk of change, a big fat stack of cash because you're making good money like you in your past career. I mean, I did it at Sprint in 08, 09. I was high on the hog making tons of money, you know? And I look back and I mean, I would do stupid things and I'd go into a strip club with singles and throw them up in the air just because I had a 500 bucks and then walk out. I wouldn't even stick around to watch the show. And I'm like, what am I doing? I look back now, I'm like, I could use that $500. Like I could put that into, I could buy, buy some Shiba Inu coin, you know what I mean? <laughs> but there's, I mean, I probably had a better chance of making money on that than strip club. But, you know, so yeah, I mean, we all make mistakes. I mean, I've filed bankruptcy. I've gone through, you know, um, loan modifications on my house. I've, I've been through a divorce and, and lost money there. I mean, it's, but the good news is when you hit rock bottom, there's only one way to go and that's up. Sometimes it takes being humbled to learn and, and you can tell people all you want. Like I could tell you, read this book on how to swim, Freddie, read this book, Alyssa. And you can read it cover to cover a thousand times, but if you never get in the pool, you're not going to know how to swim. So the kids just got to get in the pool, man. They got to go out there and experience it. And I think a lot of parents like to shelter their kids and, and not let them make mistakes. And I was that way for some time and I'm now learning. I'm like, I got to give her enough rope to hang herself. You know, I've got to let her go out there and, and fail because there's a book I read. I'm big into reading and John Maxwell is one of my favorite authors. And he wrote this book called sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. There is no losing. You know, you win or you learn and that's it. And there's no regrets. And you just gotta, you gotta learn from the mistakes you, you make and, and not make them again, make new ones instead. Exactly. No, that's, that's super insightful. Cause that's uh, just always thought about that. You know, it took me many years to learn, but Hey, now we learn. I always tell myself there's yeah. pe- people in their fifties or sixties that still haven't learned yet. And I feel like, yeah. Hey, I'm still super young and made some mistakes, but we have a grasp on it the past couple of years and, you know, gotten back on our feet in a good way. Well, if you're 33 and you've already learned, you got me beat by eight years. I'm 41. So, I mean, it's, you got, you got, you got a lot of time ahead of you. You can do right that I didn't get. Cause I didn't learn until I was probably 38. I mean, honestly, that's when I really realized what have I been doing with my life? You know what I mean? When I got in the mortgage business is when I started and started seeing finances and seeing all these people's accounts and everything. I'm like, what am I doing? When you, when you look at an employee, of McDonald's that's got more saved than you and you're making six figures a year, you're doing something wrong. You know what I mean? You're doing something really wrong. So, it, and that's, it was an eye opener, you know? So. Um, well, I got a couple more questions. Do you have another question you want to pop into? Cause I know I want to ask these two right here. Yes. Um, we had a couple questions from the audience. So I'll just kind of run through a couple of okay. them real quick. Um, is a 15-year mortgage better than a 30? That's a good question. Um, your interest rate on a 15-year mortgage is definitely going to be lower, right? Um, how much lower? Again, depending on a lot of factors, property assets, income liability. We'll call it anywhere from maybe a half a percent to three quarters of a percent. Um, but, and there's a big but to this, I personally prefer a 30-year. Um, here's why, because with a 30 year, again, it's all about budgeting, right? I can keep my monthly payments lower because it's stretched out over an extra 15 year term, right? If I want to pay my mortgage off earlier, I can, all mortgages are simple interest loans. There's no penalty for early payoff. So I can make an extra monthly payment, you know, if I wanted to every year. In fact, what a lot of buyers do is once you get a, once you buy a house and you get your mortgage, you call your lender and some lenders will set it up to where they take your 
your mortgage out every two weeks, for example, right? If you get paid biweekly, they'll just take out half your mortgage payment every two weeks. Well, if you do it that way, you're making an automatic extra mortgage payment a year because there's two extra pay periods when you're biweekly paid, right? By doing that, you're paying your mortgage off five to seven years early automatically without doing a shorter mortgage term. But if you have a rainy day where you, you, your funds are tight or you lose your job or COVID hits, then you don't, you aren't stuck with that higher payment of the shorter term mortgage of 15 years. Cause even though the interest rate's lower, the term's also lower. So your payment's still going to be higher, even with that lower interest rate. So I don't know if that answers the question, but I personally think a 30 year is the way to go just to keep your budget, your, your cost down. Now, if you're about to retire and you're older and you just don't want a mortgage payment anymore, but you, you know, you got to buy a house and you've got the means to do it and you have a set income like retirement and social security. Yeah. 15 years. Great. I mean, it'll pay the house off before you pass. And, and then you, you've got some time to retire with no mortgage payment. But aside from that, I mean, I would say 30 years, probably the year to, way to go, but every situation is different. Very insightful. Thank you. And then the other one I had was um, what are the current mortgage rates in this market? I mean, mortgage rates fluctuate daily um, and there's so many variables. I mean, I could tell you low threes probably would be an accurate figure with good credit. Um, some lenders will tell you mid to high twos. Um, one thing I will tell buyers is I never really discuss rate that much because you're going to get a good rate. I mean, in this market, there is no such thing as a bad rate. They're, they're all good. You can go to the worst lender and still get a great rate. You know what I mean? Um, but I want to make sure that the thing is with me is I want to make sure your payment is something comfortable to you, you know, because the rate is the rate is the rate. It's based on your credit. Um, if you go to like a Quicken Loans or a Rocket Mortgage, what a lot of times people see is they'll see those rates and they'll call me and say, well, they can get me this. I'm like, yes, but did you read the fine print? Because the fine print says they're charging you two points. Two points is 2% of the purchase price of your home. So that, that means they're charging you maybe $8,000 extra at closing to get you that rate. I can do that, but I don't think it's worthwhile charging you $8,000 to save you $50 a month. Because if you do the math on that, how many years is it going to take you to get that $8,000 back that you could be putting into something else, making you more than three and a half percent interest that you're saving or 3% interest. You know what I mean? But I mean, rates, I would say low mid threes is a, is a fair rate with a fair lender. Um, if you're getting, if you have a really good credit and you're going VA, low debt to income, you could probably snag mid to high twos, you know, in some situations right now. Um, but yeah, I would say that's, that's where they're at right now. Perfect. And then one other question for you, for anyone that's looking to buy right now, when it comes to closing costs, do you have any rule of thumb of what you would say closing costs for the buyers to expect what they would yep. be? I usually tell people, and this is, I always, one thing I always do is I under promise and over deliver. Um, another thing is you'll, you'll notice some lenders will say, oh, well, your closing costs will be, you know, four grand, right? And then you get to closing and it's actually six grand or seven grand. So I would rather tell you it's going to be more and make sure you have that money to do it if it is more. And then at closing time, when you say, oh, I'm saving a thousand or it's 2000 less, you're happy. It makes a lot more sense to do it that way. I tell people closing costs on average, if you want to figure high, high side, worst case scenario is about 4%, worst case of the purchase price. So for example, if you have 3% down, you know what I mean? Uh, on a conventional first time buyer or three and a half FHA, $250,000 house on FHA with three and a half percent down, you're looking at $8,750, right? But then you've got to add another 4% to that. So for FHA, you'd want to do seven and a half percent. Make sure you have that in, in the account. And you want to make sure you've got it in a bank account. And we don't take cash under mattresses or in gun safes. It has to be seasoned, you know, no Al Capone's going on. But yeah. a lot of people do that. They save money. They don't like putting it in the bank because they think, oh, I'll spend it more. My daughter's that person. I'm like, Kelly, why do you have, you have wads of cash? Look at a drug dealer, you yeah. know? But she's like, I spend it when it's in the bank. I'm like, that's so backwards to me. When I have cash, it spends so much easier than my debit card. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Just burning a hole in your pocket at that point. <laughs> Amazon Prime, baby, all day long, you know? <laughs> um, and then last question for you is when it comes to, so say for instance, if Alyssa and I wanted to, um, you know, buy a condo or a home that's a fixer upper. Mm -hmm. um, if we were to want to be qualified for something like that, um, is there a different sort of percentage down? What is the terms of like, do we have to live in it for a certain amount of time? Then you can rent it out. Or what if you're going to just flip it? How does that work with getting a loan for something like that? That's a really good question. I'll be honest. I personally have never done any of those loans. Those are called renovate renovation or rehab loans. Okay. Um, I personally have not done them and I haven't done them 
for a reason. They're not really easy loans. They're not friendly loans. And again, I always look at it as I want to leave a good taste in my realtor's mouth and my buyer's mouth so I can get good reviews. And the last thing I want to do is have a loan that could go sideways. It's not going to do that for me. So I don't really mess with them all that much. Um, I know that with those, there's typically two appraisals done. You have to have one done at the beginning, one done at the end to make sure that all the improvements have done, the inspections and whatnot. You've got to source out three different contractors for each job you want to have done in the house. Um, and then you have to use typically the highest bid of each contractor. So it, there's just a lot of moving parts when it comes to those kind of loans. And I feel there's so many moving parts in the real estate business already when it comes to realtors, lenders, title companies, inspectors, appraisers. I mean, it's just so many people and hands in the cookie jar. And now you're adding three extra contractors to it. And it's just, and more inspections and more appraisals. It's, I think, I mean, if, if, if it's, if someone's hard to set on it, I can connect them with a lender that will help them with a loan like that. But I don't want to speak out of line because I, sometimes it's better just to say, I don't, I don't really know. I'm not familiar with it, you know? And the thing with this business too is, is you got to do what's right for the realtor and the buyer. And sometimes what's right is not taking on that particular mortgage and making friends with other lenders. There's no such things as competition. There's no, there's no such thing as a competition in this industry. I mean, I'm friends with multiple lenders and I refer people out to lenders with like Seacoast Bank for land for lot loans. You know, I've got friends over at Waterstone Mortgage that I send people to for mobile home loans. Um, broker loans, same thing. I won't broker a loan. I mean, but I've got lenders that I will send people to that will do that, you know, that I know will take good care of them that specialize in those types of financing. Foreign national loans. I can't, I don't touch them, you know. I don't know how to convert yen. I, I just haven't figured that out. I'm sure Google could tell me, but, you know. So, but we have, I have partners in the field that, that I work with that they send me business for certain types of loans. I send them business for other types of loans and it, it all works out. That's awesome, man. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. This has been yeah, super insightful and yes. awesome. Um, now you mentioned 47 states. It'll probably be quicker to say which three you can't work with, but if there's anyone listening who wants to write you down in, your, in their Rolodex for if they ever need a loan, where can they find you? and uh and all that good stuff and i'll put you I'll put that code up as well so they can scan yeah it. you can throw the code up on the screen um i can be reached at 407-399-9966 is my cell phone uh my email address is very long it's mchase at novishomemortgage.com uh you can also visit my website which is mc like matthew chase fundings with an s at the end.com has a lot of good information on there and you can also download my mobile app for Android or um, iPhone on there as well. Alyssa has that on her phone. It's pretty cool. It's got calculators and stuff, explains a lot of the stuff you were asking, Freddie. Um, 47 states, the three we don't handle, I know I'm pretty sure one of them is New York. I'm not sure the other two. Um, I just started with Novus about a month and a half ago with this company, but I'm pretty sure that you got you got a good percent chance, you know, yeah. you're in, you got, <laughs> You got, a, you got a pretty good percentage. Three times. Um, but if I can't, again, like I said before, you know, I will be sure to uh, to refer you out to somebody. But your, your odds are good. 94% chance that I'll help you out with, with, with your mortgage in whatever state you're in. So perfect. And Matthew, it was so nice to officially meet you because we yeah. work together on the phone all the time. And you've been so wonderful. You're just always available right away there to help the client. So I try to be. I try to be. I do my best. I know that's how I want to be treated, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. One more thing I want to say before we go, if I can, is when it comes to the first-time buyers, right, I want to caution people to know the difference between a pre-qualification and a pre-approval. They are two totally different things. You know, a conversation, I, kind of, I, I try to break things down into layman's terms for people because, you know, they don't really have the experience. Um, when it comes to us having a conversation over the phone, I tell people that's like a black and white TV, right? I get your story. I hear what you're looking for. You tell me what your income is. I got a good idea. Once you do the application and I pull your credit, now we're looking at a color TV. So it's a little bit clearer image for me. I'm starting to see things come together. It's not until I get your documents that I'm looking in high definition and can get you a pre-approval letter. So any buyer who calls me or who tells a realtor or who is told by a lender that they're pre-approved and that lender has not asked for docs, you are not pre-approved. You're pre-qualified, but that means nothing because, you know, the, the, you don't know what you don't know. And that's why I also discourage people like me. I would use somebody like Quicken Loans, but I do it for a living. You know what I mean? I, I know everything they're going to ask for. If you're a first-time buyer, somebody who only bought maybe one or two houses in your life, 
and you go to Quicken Loans and they say, oh, I can get you approved in five minutes. I don't know about you, but I can't even get approved for a car in five minutes. So I don't know if I want to trust somebody to approve me for something like a house, such a huge purchase in five minutes, because I had one buyer come to me that had done just that. And, you know, they said, well, they denied me. Can you help? And I'm like, sure, let me, let's do the application. I talked to him and into the asset section, he had put down his vehicle was worth $15,000. And I'm like, okay, I said, are you selling this car? And they're like, well, no. And I'm like, well, that's how they approved you. Because when you put that on the application with Quicken Loans, they looked at it as that's an asset, you own it, and you're going to sell it. And when you told them before closing that you weren't selling your car, you're no longer approved. And there's not anything I can do. But that's why these conversations are so important, because a computer is not going to ask you questions, you know, like a person, a good lender will. You know, you've got to find somebody you trust. You've got to find somebody who has your best interest at heart. And like you said, Freddie, don't find the lender that is approving you for the max, unless that's what you want, you know, which is fine. But if they do that, make sure that they also approve you for what you're comfortable paying. Because other words, you're not doing yourself any favors. So, so true. Thank you, man. Yeah, this has been super insightful. I, I know people are going to find a lot of value in this because um, I know I've, I've learned everything from you just going through this process as well. And it's been just eye-opening to be able to put yeah. this on the the bulletin board of like buying a home one day, but truly understanding what needs to be done to make it a smooth pre-approval and actual loan process. So look, I'm an open book. You know what I mean? I, I, I believe also buyers that I like to get down on their level because I have buyers that get really discouraged. Like, man, I really want to buy a house. I've been trying so hard. And I'm like, look guys, I rent right now. Okay. I'm a lender who's telling you to buy and I rent. So I understand the want, you know, but, but you've also got to know the when and the how. And I've got to a place now where in the next year or so, I will, I will be able to purchase a home, you know, but when, since I'm a commission only employee, and like I said, the first year, I didn't make a whole lot. So again, commission, we take an average. So I had to wait until my income got more consistent and higher enough to where I can take that average and purchase the home I'm looking that I want to get into. So it's nice when you can relate to people like that and it helps them understand, okay, I'm not alone because there's, there's thousands of people out there who, who want to buy that just aren't in the right time right in this moment, but they will be. Yeah. And don't forget about those people. Stay in touch with them. As a lender, as a realtor, keep in touch, follow up with them, see how they're doing. You know what I mean? Ask them if they have any questions throughout the, make some connections with credit repair people. I've got a credit repair guy who's phenomenal. I mean, only person I'd ever refer somebody to and he's fair. You know what I mean? So it's all about, knowing you just got to know know the way to go and that's it exactly man know the way to well, go I thank like you it. so much um and you know maybe in the future if you want to come back on we'd love to chat more um this has been awesome so uh but yeah we, we should have this up um maybe as early as this week yeah so we'll, we'll let you know once we get it all edited and stuff like that but this has been really fun man yes. thank, you. Yeah. thank you it's been a great time i appreciate you guys having me on and if you guys have any questions Alyssa, i know you've been staying in touch freddie if you have any questions man just feel free to give me a shout anytime Awesome, dude. Y'all, y'all stay in touch and and uh, be well. Take care, okay? Right, man. Take care. God bless you.